Welcome to the Tiny Typecast, a podcast about printing and type history, past and present. I'm your host, Len Fleischman. On this episode about indexing, I'm joined by Dennis Duncan, the author of Index, Comma, A History of the, and the book's indexer, Paula Clark Bain. You may have noticed this podcast isn't being produced on a regular schedule, but I'll continue to make episodes as the subject warrants. This podcast is brought to you by my book, Six Centuries of Type and Printing. It explains the full historical scope of the development of ever-improving methods to create type and market on paper. Starting even before Gutenberg, I dig into the several technologies he put together that allowed a consistent, easily copied process that spread like wildfire. The book follows six centuries of development through the modern digital era. This book is a mix of old and new. It was written on a computer, mocked up digitally, and then the text sent to a Mac to monotype system that allowed it to be composed directly in hot metal in North Yorkshire, England. Illustrations were converted from digital files to magnesium plates, and the book was printed by letterpress in London. The book's hardcover cloth binding with foil stamping and a slipcase were completed near the Black Forest in Germany. It's available for shipping worldwide. Go to tinytypemuseum.com book to find out more, see photos, and order a copy. Be safe, be well, and on with the podcast. Welcome to the Tiny Typecast. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, and this episode is about flipping to the back of the book. Uh, if you're like me, and I, I don't know if you are, but if you are, sometimes reading the index is my favorite part. I start with it. It's kind of like having dessert before supper. But again, if you're like me, you know exactly what I mean. And two people on this podcast, I think, know exactly what I mean. I've got with me today the author of and indexer of Index, comma, A History of the, A Bookish Adventure. And I'd like to welcome Dennis Duncan and Paula Clark Bain. Hello. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for having us. Uh, let me introduce you to the audience. Uh, Dennis Duncan is a writer, translator, and lecturer in English at University College London. He's the author also of book parts, and he's appeared in The Guardian, The Times Literary Supplement, and The London Review of Books. He can be found on Twitter at DBJDuncan, and I'll have that in the show notes. Paula Clark Bain, an indexer, copy editor, and proofreader, has performed her indexing work on books covering such varied topics as Winston Churchill, Fry and Laurie, horror movies, Ted Hughes, Musical Modernism, The Peterloo Massacre, Pigs in America, and The History of the Vampire. You can find her at baindex.org or on Twitter at at PC underscore Bain. And that'll also be in the show notes. You know, I used to brag that I got a chicken and a cartoon party punctuation gorilla on the front page of The Economist. And uh, this is at different times, not in the same article. Uh, but your list, Paula, really wins out. I have to say. <laughs> have to say eclectic. Eclectic is wonderful. the word. <laughs> That's got to be the most exciting part, though, right, is that you get to work with all these different works. It's a brilliant job to do. And yes, you're never quite sure what you're going to get offered um, or what you're going to say yes to. So, Can I ask a question, Paula, about that? Often indexes have specialisms. You have somebody who does a lot of gardening books because they know about gardening. Or if you have a medical textbook, you need to have an indexer who, indexer who knows about the subject. Otherwise, they'll get things wrong and that could be dangerous. So what, what are yours? What's, uh, um, oh, that's a great question. With an kind of eclectic background like that. Who goes <laughs> um, to you? My specialism really is sort of literature, um, mm. film studies, that kind of area. Indexes tend to be on the arts, humanities side or the sciencey side or maths. Um, there's a whole different group of law indexes, legal books, which I don't touch. Um, so within arts and humanities, that's that's very wide what it could be. Mainly sort of English, American literature, my main one, I think. But then if, if anything comes along that looks really interesting and I think I can do a good job on, I'll likely to say yes, really. <laughs> good. As an author, I always think, you know, there, how do you become a subject matter expert enough to write about it? And then I think about the sort of the incredible esoteric nature of indexing as a, as a a science craft and art and the expertise you need. I, I want to start with kind of a fundamental question. I mean, I think listeners will know this, but I'm always interested in how people define their own work. And so, Dennis, you just completed uh, you know, last year this book about the index. How do you define what an index is? I mean, is there one def definition for it? We know what the modern one is, or we think it is. Well, I think about the, the most simple definition is it's a, a table with two columns. And in the first column is something that you know where to find. Sorry, sorry about the grammar there, but, but you know what I mean? The, the first column is a column that you can navigate. And the second column will point you 
to the thing that you don't know where to find. So if you're looking for something and you don't know where to find it, but you know the you know what it is that you're looking for and you know the order of the letters of the alphabet, then you can look the word up, look the thing up in the first column. And then that, that will give you a, a, a locator that will allow you to navigate the sort of uncharted territory, the thing that you didn't know where to find it. So when you have a mass of data, the index is a two column table, first column, which you can navigate. And the second will allow you to navigate the uh, the mass. Does that sound fair, Paula? Yes, I think so. I think when we're sort of training with the Society of Indexes, we, we a whole entry is a heading plus a locator. So as you said, it's mm. the thing and where the thing is. And if it's not both of those, then it's not an index. Mm. I, I think we have a tendency as modern readers, if we aren't studying history, this has been my journey in the last few years let's go deeper and deeper into the into the past and and you know challenge what i thought i knew is uh, we think a lot of things that are that involve oh i don't know a lot of data have to be modern innovations and then then i'm old enough i say index cards index cards kids uh we used to do amazing things with um with punch cards index cards and and before that slips of paper and uh you know the oxford english dictionary was compiled before the aid of any computer and i, I think the book reveals this really thoroughly dennis that the index feels very modern because it is a random access kind of mechanism. It relies on the book, the codex form, but you trace the history of it back quite a ways. Uh, how, how did the need for the index arise? Sure. That's a really good question. I, I want to just, first of all, though, pick up on that idea of the random access memory. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something, a phrase I encountered in the 1980s. It, it's a it's a phrase like of the sort of yeah. information of the computer age, if you like, random access. But when I started to think about the, the index and the history of the index, I realized that it's a really good way of describing the difference between a codex and a scroll. That a scroll is something that, that is uh, relatively easy to read from start to finish, read in a linear way. But a scroll is a very unrandom access form of the book. And whereas the codex, it, it really is no harder to open a book in the middle than it is at the, from the start or, or the end. And so that was a really conceptually useful idea for me. Okay, the, the random access memory, that's what a codex is. And then that jump allowed me to sort of think of of the indexes as having this kind of long long history 800 year history really back to the the start of the 13th century but to think of it as a piece of information technology whose most kind of recent avatar is, is is the search engine but the the trip for allowing me to think of it like that was that phrase random access oh. and and think of the codex as, as a random access technology okay so back to the start of the 13th century we've got two new institutions here we've got the preaching orders the franciscans oh. dominicans what's happened here is in the 12th century there have been certain uh, dangerous heresies uh, notably catharism in, in the south of france um, which opposed a real threat to the church and the church has really sort of decided that in order to deal with uh, uh, the, the threat of, of kind of uh, heretical cults, they need to do a better job of speaking to people, to people who might be led astray. And it's not enough to have the monastery culture, the monastic culture where, where monasteries are isolated, isolated communities where people will go and spend their lives, monks will spend their lives living off the coast of Brittany or whatever it is. No, what you need are uh, people in a similar role, but, but who will live among the people, live in the cities, and who will preach, and therefore make sure that the, the flock don't stray because they're, they're being preached to regularly by friars. The, the orders of friars uh, um, ar arise in the early 13th century. We'll come to why that's important. The other thing that happens, again, around about the late 12th century, early 13th century, is the university. Universities in Bologna, Paris and Oxford. So these two new institutions, the preaching orders and the universities, both have new types of speech, if you like. The sermon, the friars go out and preach, they preach sermons. And then the universities, the lecture teaching is done by, by a, a format called Lectio, speaking. And in order to write sermons and to write lectures, you need a new way of reading, a more efficient way of reading. You need to be able to look things up. If you're going to do a sermon, on bread. You think, I'm going to go out and preach or do a sermon on bread. Um, in order to make that engaging, you'll want to jump around the Bible. Maybe we'll start with the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Then I can jump to uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Then perhaps I'll take a big leap back to the Old Testament and, and the manna from heaven. And you can see you can make all of these 
things sort of fit together in your sermon, make it engaging, make it uh, use the whole of the Bible. In order to do that, well, first of all, we need to be able to flip through the Bible pretty quickly. But also we probably need a prompt, an aid memoir to help us. What else could I do? Where could I go with this? So the index is a very useful aid for producing sermons. Same for lectures. You have to preach. Uh, no, you have to give a lecture on, on a certain subject. I do it all the time now, even now when I'm lecturing. You use your index. Where was that bit I was going to say about such and such? These, these are the need, need to produce lectures and the need to produce sermons brings about a need to, to treat books in a different way, not the slow mode of monastic reading where you have your whole life to, to read. You trace your finger along the page and mumble the holy words as you do it. No, I need this sermon for Sunday. I'm going to have to... Uh, I'm going to have to use the book rather than read in that kind of linear way. It's, I, I want to sidebar uh, to the modern era, Paul, and ask you a question that's directly related to this. Is I think about, it's not a um, it's not a trope, but it's sort of, I think it's, there's a lazy thinking that we're always smarter than the previous generation. And, you know, there are things like nutrition and improved pedagogy and, and the you know, increase in knowledge. But we are, in many ways, fundamentally exactly as we were thousands of years ago. I was having a conversation in the family about that. Like, I love reading history because I understand that. Socrates and I were both human beings. <laughs> we're not that. Uh, we're not necessarily different orders of beings. And I think about the amount that I can keep in my head. And in fact, wait, I've got your book here, and I'm going to open the index because it's. Uh, let's see here. Quickly find Socrates, pages 132 to 135, 232. And in this book, see, in this great, I can just do this in real time. I can pull out the reference because you quote, and I can keep this in my head. Enough of your book is in my head. Um, that you quote Socrates teasing Phaedrus, I bet you asked to hear it twice, then borrowed the script so you could memorize it in reference to Phaedrus uh, describing the notes of another conversation. And um, so I've, I know I'm being dramatic here because I, I did that live. I, couldn't, I remember it's in the book. So I can keep your book. I mean, I'm surely at this point, I read it a few weeks ago. All the details are not there, but there's a, I have a fairly good uh, sense memory and I can remember a lot of the stuff. I remember Socrates is in there. I didn't remember it was Phaedrus and so forth. The index helped me get it there. But it's also, I have the book in my head. And I think the Bible is a very large book. And there's a point at which the contents of the work exceeds our head. Even if you spend your life studying it, maybe you do eventually memorize it. Maybe you build an internal concordance or index. But, but Paula, I wonder how much of your profession winds up being, or does it even conceive that way? Like how much do you have to keep in your head to then distill it into the index? In terms of actually doing the indexing, it's a very, very intensely cognitive experience for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to, you may have like a week or two sometimes, and you're trying to distill an academic's work over years sometimes. And you're you're going into this cold, you know, you're going into this from, from a standing start sometimes. And it's very intense while you're doing it. And you're you really are starting it. I mean, I, I tend to do a, a skim read first and get a feel mm. of everything and where, where things are going to come back in. But then you are starting at page one and you are noting down what you think is important, what page it's on, and you're reading it in a linear way. You do need like your working memory. It's very it's very time limited. It, you don't have to keep that much in your brain at that point ah. because you're you're putting it in as you're reading it along. You're you are reading the book and you are noting things as you're going along. Later on as you're doing this you're sort of building a big mind map of what the index structure could be looking like in the end where everything is in the book how it all links to each other and it's in the editing stage for me that that all comes together mm. and you you make it into some kind of coherent usable index but then you send that book off and hopefully it's, it's approved <laughs> and then you're on something else you're on a completely different book again and it's very weird it's even it's weird going back to to this book now mm. uh, although I have gone back and looked at it quite a lot since because of because of various things we've been asked to do and it's had quite a lot of publicity and everything but the, the amount that falls straight back out of your brain pretty much after you've done one index and you've done you've gone to a next one and you, you know what's in the book and I can recognize it's my index and I know that I've put certain things in there but there's a lot if you're trying to to talk about an index after you've done a few other indexes in between it's quite difficult because it's you've done other things since then and it's that has taken that has sort of moved some of the original index out of your brain if you know so talking in terms of is there a, you've got a limited space in your brain you have and so a lot of this one <laughs> isn't there anymore because I've done a year's worth of indexes since I do know what's in it and it is very familiar and it comes back to me but it's kind of a bit more vague than you might think it is for me because there's other indexes in there now as well. you have to impose amnesia on yourself because you'd be too full of conflicting work it sounds like when I was preparing the book I remember talking to indexes yourself and a few others 
who were talking about their process. And some people said, just to do with that thing of getting up to speed, some concepts that turn out to be important, you might not know until you're a few chapters in. So I remember some indexes saying that they do a kind of deep read and they prepare an index, but then they go back and do the first few chapters again, because first few, few chapters get a, get a raw deal otherwise, because you don't really know what the book's about for a while. Or others said that they do what you do there, which is before you start preparing it, you do a kind of skim read. So you have a sense of what to expect, because otherwise you're kind of cognitively going through the gears and anything that's important that's in the first few chapters might not be given the, the, the sort of prominence that that it would if it appeared in chapter five, if you like. It's, it's something that's I've developed over time. I didn't used to do that when I started out and I, I always do it now. And it can just be an hour, an hour or two skim through mm. the whole book. But then you get a much better sense of mm. the arguments and what is going to be important later on. But, oh, right, that's, that's going to be a big yeah, yeah. part of chapter eight or whatever. Otherwise, you, you really don't know. You are just going into it blind and you don't know where you're going to end up, which is quite exciting, but not necessarily <laughs> what you want for the best what, what a great trick of the trade, too. How do you decompose a work to be useful to the reader? Since there's, you know, obviously, like a writer, we have various you know, readers in mind. As an indexer, you must have an idea of the ideal reader or sets of readers you're trying to serve. Do you think of that reader? Absolutely. That's, that's what we're supposed to. That's what we're there for. We are there to help the reader navigate the book we're not even really there for the author we're there for people who are coming to the book <laughs> the <laughs> truth comes out <laughs> i mean we are obviously but with that what we're putting in the book is for the reader which includes the author when they're looking back at the book as well so yeah you're doing it for the author to make the book more usable for the reader but yes we're always bearing in mind the reader or the different readerships i knew for this one there'd be scholarly readers there'd be people coming to it who didn't know very much about indexes at all because it's it's a trade book or it was in the UK. A trade People book. skimming it for jokes like me. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll come on to the jokes in a bit. Okay. Excellent. Um, but I also knew there were going to be a lot of indexers. Lots of people who know a lot about indexing would be reading this. And that was oh that was quite a pressure in itself because I, I knew exactly what kind of people would be reading this because I know a lot of them as well. I remember you saying that, Paula, that you're having quite a lot of kind of anxieties or sort of imposter syndrome within mm. within your very you know exclusive sort of yeah, um, peer group the society of indexes definitely imposter syndrome is definitely it and, and i've been indexing for well, i don't know 15 years probably more than that i still get it because it is in some ways it's quite subjective we, we have peer reviews in the society of indexes where we all mm. take a chapter of a book and we all do an index to it and there'll be things in common with all of them and they'll but they will all be completely different in some ways and it's such a good it's such a good exercise i've done a few of them it just yeah it just opens your eyes into because everyone's looking at the text in a different way because we're human beings and we've got different brains and mm. different experiences. But you're trying, you're also all trying to be in the head of that reader. But even then, they will all be different. And they can all be perfectly good, as good as each other, but they'll be different. <laughs> I hope they've all been nice to you now they've seen this one. Yes. They have been nice. That's good. I think, yeah. Sort of, uh, this is a little bit of a rough transition, but it's reminding me that we're talking about sort of the this eighth century history of it and how modern to me it feels. And, you know, like many people, I suppose, you know, kind of layperson's knowledge, I would have thought that you need uh, Gutenberg to make indexes viable just from like a cost or production or scale standpoint. And um, when I was starting to dig into historical research of the origins of the book a few years ago, I found some statistics. Someone had produced a paper of like the number of, of uh, vellum and other manuscripts, uh, uh, handwritten manuscripts from uh, monasteries and, and uh, scriptoria that had been produced and the number was staggering and so you know gutenberg we we're talking about this need for the uh the, the brothers going into the street and you know gutenberg of course comes at a time when there's a crying need for a uniformity there are too many heretical different varying texts of the bible and so there wants there's a, a sort of demand to have a unified version but at the same time there's a, just a massive amount of copying going on and there are there are sweatshop scriptoria all over europe churning out um i think literally millions of, of handwritten manuscript which i didn't mm. have any idea I and mean, the scope is astonishing and then of course you know the numbers start going out of control because uh, the minute the printing press is unleashed you go from this point when even though there was an explosion there was this need for understanding what the sum total of human knowledge was and how to access it and then it squares and cubes or something and suddenly there are hundreds of thousands and millions and tens of millions of big books being produced um, over a short period of time uh, i mean dennis how did uh you know i think uh, again i have to I, I don't think i don't think 57 volume set would be indexed so i can't look it up but i recall there was one uh series you were talking about uh was it 57 volumes this will be the the Patrologia 
Latina. That that um, I think it's two hundred and eighteen volumes, and then oh, the last goodness. four volumes are hundreds of different indexes. I call dozens of different indexes, and the, 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 these indexes spread across four volumes, and they get the pastor. I forget his name. Uh, um, the French pastor who who edited the whole thing writes this incredible hyperbolic introduction to the indexes where he talks about how many people he had producing these indexes uh how much he paid them all um how much it was going to cost to print and he, he compares this to the sort of great production of, of the of, in, of the industrial revolution um mm-hmm. i might just look it up if you don't mind right. this is when we have um, yeah this is why we're yeah, all I'm looking at up at the moment as well. that's all, <laughs> while you're discussing that i think we have a discussion on, on twitter as i'm watching i'm watching uh bill bailey do a joke about samuel peeps on on youtube and and i'm like oh isn't samuel peeps and oh no see and I, and I forget that it's peeps I've, I've forgotten the joke already that he told and i'm quoting Samuel Johnson's a biographer Boswell. And I'm trying to tell my 14 year old this joke, and I'm looking in the index, and I'm like, why isn't Boswell in the index? Paula certainly couldn't have left out Boswell. Oh no, wait, there's Boswell, but that's not the no, not Boswell. It's uh, maybe I'm thinking of uh, Alexander Pope, and it's like no, oh, and then finally it Peeps. So my, you know, you have to know the thing you're looking for too. There is that, and then I found Peeps and the and the reference, of course, and could could discuss it but the memory goes afoul it's like if i <laughs> peeps and pope are not the same person please well, that's right if you, if you can't if you can't look it up in the first column then um... <laughs> i need yeah. the things you forgot <laughs> index you might have been then, thinking of then you're in trouble so this is minya the, the year is 1865 and this this project of, of printing all of the all of the church fathers from from the third century up to the 13th century in 218 volumes has just come to an end after about uh, two decades and Minya is introducing the in the indexes Um, he says who will sound the abyss this is the problem there's so much data there who's (laughs) going how are you going to navigate this you could never find what you want he says Um, who could ever find the time to study all these fathers and read their writing in any way the solution is the index and then he starts to sort of work himself up. He says, more than 50 men working on the indexes for more than 10 years for the feeble recompense, sorry about this, Paula, for the feeble recompense recompense of a thousand francs a year. Goodness. He does the maths. He says that's more than half a million francs to him, not even counting the printing costs. Then he starts to say, our indexes have cleared the way. So you're somebody who's interested in the church fathers. Our indexes have cleared the way. They've leveled mountains and straightened the most tortuous paths. <laughs> With the help of our indexes, this vast subject has become small. Distances have become shorter. The first and last volume come together. What a time saver. More than the railway, even than the balloon. This is electricity, he says. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's so it's poetry. Um, <laughs> but it's so interesting that he has these inventions of the modern period in mind it's it's the railway the leveling of roads it's the shortening of time all of this is what the industrial revolution has done it's shortened time and the book index has done this i love it the book index is mm-hmm. as much a symbol of modernity for Minya of the shortening of time as as the railway or even the hot air balloon <laughs> to terrifying as a scholar i would think in the 1800s because um the speed of printing you know, went from hand operated presses to mm. steam to electrical operated presses over just decades and the introduction of stereotype presses or stereotypes to make uh, for plate making so you could reprint books at will you could make huge editions they could you know newspapers went from a few you know broadsheets to uh, hundreds of pages an edition there could be multiple editions a day the speed of that change was insane and so if you're a scholar i'm thinking you go from having a set of historical works you reference and some limited number of new ones that come out and you know and even though things are being produced in large numbers from Gutenberg through the early 1800s and then what happens your entire world explodes everyone is publishing all the time books are coming out at an astonishing rate you know kind of I think the way people felt when ebooks and self-publishing became a thing uh, at scale maybe starting 20 years ago and that explosion that's happened since and the index is the savior right the only way that you could possibly cope with and I think I mean there's a wonderful thing you address again this is what see Paula you must love this I'm picking up the book uh, dear listeners you can't see this we're on a zoom call I'm picking up the book to look up uh, periodicals uh, indexed periodicals there it is see again I need the aid to memoir but we're talking about that the huge that uh, 200 plus volume collection would have been inaccessible they couldn't have 
printed in the past. It would have taken lifetimes to print. In the 1800s, 1860s, they can print something that huge and disseminate it, but the knowledge is inaccessible without the index. But I was, I don't know if you could talk a little bit about this history of the, uh, of Poole's alphabetic index. That to me was absolutely fascinating about, and we still have that problem today, the creation of so much information in periodic form as papers and magazines, even if magazines have transformed entirely into online searchable things that are often completely locked away unless you're at a university that's paying huge subscription fees to access them. It seems like Poole had this remarkable idea. Dennis, can you explain a little bit what Poole, Poole did? Because it seems transformative to academic I, work. I can, but before that, I would say that, that there's no moment where where it becomes a new anxiety, that this anxiety <laughs> of, of too much to know. Goes well, that's back a to great thing. Ecclesiastes, you know, of the making mm-hmm. of books, there is no end. The, so this thing that you're talking about it must be terrifying to be yes. a scholar in, in, in the 1800s. Well, yeah, but it was also exactly the same anxiety that, that, that people had for, for the two millennia before that. So, uh, you know, even, even when things increase exponentially, the, the anxiety that we feel about it is um, has been around for all time. <laughs> it's just compounded. That's great. We get, well, you invent one set of tools, and then those tools become inadequate because the explosion increases and people go, ah, and then new tools, new yeah. modes. Right? And here we are with, with, with Google at our fingertips. And yet that, that anxiety of when you try to produce something, this is impossible because what about all the stuff I overlook? We deal with it. You know? so, so all I would say about that is, is, is I don't think it ever sort of emerges from nothing. There was no point where everyone said, oh, I used, I used to find it easy mm-hmm. and now it's impossible. The anxiety <laughs> is, is, as old as, is as old as scholarship itself. Poole, though, Poole is born in Salem, Massachusetts in the, the 1820s. Have I got that right? 1820s, William Poole. And he's born into relative poverty, but he's a, an absolute uh, prodigy. And his parents decide that he should go to university. He should go to, to Yale. And so uh, he works after school. He works for a year or so and he goes to Yale, but very quickly runs out of money and he has to drop out of Yale again for three, we- three years. He go back, goes back to teaching in order to save up enough money to go. So he absolutely doesn't have any of these sort of privileges or entitlements that many, many, many people, certainly in, in my country, but I suspect it was the same at Yale, mm-hmm. that the majority of his peers would have. So he's quite late when he enters university again and he has to work. To support himself through university he takes up a job as assistant librarian one of the libraries there what happens here is when the essay questions are announced each week they'll be pinned on the door of the chapel and the students will see the essay questions and they'll rush to the library and they'll say to Poole, here's the essay questions what should what what should we look up and Poole will prepare bibliographies that the students can use in the library in his second year Poole has the notion that these bibliographies are are always looking at monographs, are always looking at books, and yet Yale has a strong collection in periodicals. The, the, the periodical, this, we're talking about the early 1840s, the mm-hmm. periodical has uh, for at least four decades become the sort of primary source of the latest knowledge in, in any branch of knowledge that periodical information is where you find the good stuff. But there's no way for the students to do this. So Poole takes it on himself to go through the periodical collection as it is, I can't remember it. Several dozen periodicals and all of their back issues in that particular library, jotting down every article they published and the subject of it. And he puts this into an alphabetical list that he writes up. And then when the students want their bibliographies, he's able to use both books and the periodicals. The trouble is the thing that he's produced very quickly gets tattered and dog-eared because he's just <laughs> written it up. So he sends it off to the printers. 500 copies are printed and orders start coming in immediately from the British Library has a copy. People are getting in touch with this uh, sophomore at Yale saying, please, can we have a copy of that thing? It becomes incredibly popular, incredibly quickly. After university, Poole goes on to have an incredibly distinguished career as a librarian. He becomes one of the top librarians moving around the Cincinnati Library, Chicago Library. Cincinnati Library is the one that you will have seen pictures of that has these, you know, shelves that are several stories high Mm -hmm. and tiny fluted columns like spindly columns. Beautiful 19th century library. Poole is responsible for moving in into that premises. Then he gets headhunted by Chicago, who are just rebuilding their library after the big fire there. He's really the top librarian of of the mid 19th century. And people are constantly asking him, can you update that thing that you did? And he gets fed (laughs) out because he hasn't got time he's he has a major career as, as a major distinguished librarian he hasn't got time to to do that thing but 
in the uh, 1870s, finally, there's a meeting, an international congress of, of, of librarians in London. All of the libraries from Europe, America, Britain, send their top librarians and pool things. Okay, now's the time. He's an old man. I'll revisit that project. Only it's going to be a distributed project now. Mm-hmm. I haven't got time to do this. So he turns up at the International Congress of Librarians and says, we all need to do this. We all need to produce what used to be called uh, pool, Pool's Index of Periodicals. It's 30 years out of date. We need to do this again. And he distributes the task. This library, you have a good collection in, in these periodicals, science periodicals, music periodicals, religious, whatever. The task is divvied up across the libraries of, of Europe and North America, and they will index their periodical articles and send them on slips back to Poole. Poole will take the job of the sort of clearing house. Uh, that's his role. And sure enough, 1882, I think, Poole's index to periodicals. Now it's spanning hundreds, hundreds of periodicals, even, even Dickens' Household Words, which, which is mostly fiction. But, but all of the major periodicals are now in Poole's index. There's also a project to keep updating it. Every five years, there'll be a Mm -hmm. supplement published. This is a running, rolling project. And again, I keep using this metaphor of Google. I do apologise for it, but this is the sort of Google of 19th century. All of knowledge, periodical knowledge being the most up-to-date knowledge, is now available. Libraries will all have copies of this. If you're interested in such and such, you can go and look it up. We started off in this podcast talking about eclecticism. And I thought I'd just give you a sense of the kinds of things that are in pool's index you can see if you run your finger down this is the first edition you've got opium and then opossums and then optical illusions you've got entries on card sharping or pilchards or piracy or dynamo electric machines and so on so every single branch of knowledge is represented in pool's periodical index and just looking at it reads like well it reads like that sort of eclecticism we're talking about with with, with paula's hinterland there fry and lorry the history of vampires anything you could possibly want is there it's a tremendous thing because i think i hate the notion of knowledge being locked up that's inaccessible Mm. luckily i guess we're in a modern time so google uncovers things but i was telling my kids about researching a paper in college it's the 1980s so we had computerized card catalogs but we didn't have much else and going up into the stacks and i was a yaley so i went up sterling memorial library and climbed through the narrow stacks and ducked down and I found books in its section and and they hadn't been checked out since the 1930s. And to me, I was like, oh, how exciting. I discovered new information. The other part yeah. is like, oh no, no one is in this library, maybe nowhere in the world has looked at this book for 50 years and maybe no, never again. So there's something about immortality. Absolutely. It also, when you describe the card catalog, it, it makes me want to ask Paula about, about the process now. Did that, have you ever indexed on slips? I haven't. Um, it was, it was, we had computer programs by the time I started, which was, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, something like that. But I, I know plenty of indexers who did used to use index cards. That's why they're called index cards. Mm. And they used to write them all down, write your entries on them, write your subheadings on, write your page number, and then file those in order in shoe boxes because they tended to be the right size to keep all the cards in. And then you'd either, you'd either type up that yourself or you'd send the whole box of cards yeah. to the publisher. And then oh they, would, you would, so they would type it from the index card. And that's how they get it into electronic form. For Could you. you tell us tell us a bit about what the software does for you instead now? Because because I think I'm right in saying that it only really helps with the sort of um, kind of manual process, the the, the the kind of dumb processes. Yeah, it, it, it helps with sort of styling things and um, alphabetizing things, and different different publishers have different styles of how they want. Do they want a comma after a main entry? Do they want um, how do they want page ranges um, presented? Do they want all the figures or do they want them elided? Things like that. We might come on to that letter by letter, word by word alphabetization mm. example. But it'll you can just click a button on your software and that will that will sort that out for you, although it's best to check as well because it sometimes doesn't work. But the, it doesn't index things for you. You are the one typing in what the entry is, what the sub entry yeah, is. Yeah. You're still just basically describing sorting and formatting is what is what the the software yes, is for. Exactly. Yeah. It it just it it just speeds up getting it into a form that you can send to the publisher that they can run straight into the back of the book. But it, it certainly doesn't do the, the intellectual work for you. It, it frees you up so you can do more of that. But it, yeah. um, as you can see from the computer index in your book, Dennis, it, it can't do the indexing in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Not that you need to s- you know, sell the notion of index. Or maybe you do. Maybe people call you up and say, like, why should I have an index for the book? Mm-hmm. But you know, what do you think, uh, what value does an index add? You know, why should a book have an index? I mean, by the time I'm I'm 
contacted about an index, they, they don't need persuading. Cause they, oh, that's great. They, they know fantastic. they want one, so, they, yeah, so that's okay. Um, but, but yeah, there, there's certainly an argument. There's There are a lot of books now, more than ever, that, that come out without an index at all, ones that really need the biographies and things like that. I mean, how are you, how are you supposed to use that book properly? It's, as you say, it's a, it's a marketing tool. It, it sells books. Readers will, will perhaps put a book back if they've looked at the back of the book and there isn't an index. It sells them to libraries as well. That can help swing whether a book gets gets put in a library or not it's got a good index um it's it's a tool for your for your readers it, it's going to help them use your book it's going to make it more useful if it's an academic book it's helping students with their work it's obviously time saving which we've talked about it's very important it makes your book a more a more rounded scholarly lasting work i think it helps sell the book i, I mentioned a book catalogue from 1470 that the oldest surviving sales catalogue from the printed era. This is Peter Schoeffer, who, who replaced Gutenberg, who, who uh, supplanted his, his boss, Gutenberg, in Mann's very beginning of the printing era. 1470, he printed a sales list that his salesmen would take around the German states, saying these, these are the books available. And there's an edition of Augustine there that says, cum tabula, with an index. And it has... Oh. Uh, held the book and it has this very extensive table already as f- again these things are not new as far back as you want to go an index is a selling point and that the earliest sales list says this one's got an index so that's that's an important reason why books have an index the other thing i would add to to why do books have indexes or why should your books have book have an index is when you read when you read different types of books you read them in different ways when you read a novel probably you read it from page one through to the end and then you never look at it again. You take it to the charity shop or, or put it on the shelf and never look at it again. If you have a long straight road with no turnings, you don't need a map. You don't need a signpost, uh, is what I mean to say. Anytime you start to talk about using a book, you tend to be talking about needing turnings, that this is a book that you either straight away, uh, you're not going to read the whole thing, or you do read the whole thing, but you don't take it to the charity shop because you will want to go back to it. And if you want to go back Ah. to something, there'll be a moment that you want to go back to. You don't want to go back to the whole thing. So if you have a reference book or a non-fiction book, these tend to be the books, memoirs, history books. These are all instances of books where maybe you do read the whole thing from start to finish, but then you don't dispense with it because there will be that thing that you want to check, that thing that you want to quote, that thing that you want to go back to. So the the long life of a book is how do you reuse it? How do you go back to it after you've read it? And that's where you really need an index. That's wonderful. I mean, that's not, I know that's still a modern phenomenon. It seems like something from the past where it's, um, you know, books were less readily accessible. So you, once you have a book, you keep it, uh, if you know how to access what's in it. But of course, that's still, I mean, I've got a, I'm looking to my left where you can see, I at one point was going to get rid of a bunch of design books. And then of course I kept them and now I have 10 times as many uh, because that's how I've, you know, I buy books from the 1800s and from the 2022s um, because they have utility to have them on hand in a, uh, even though searching can be easier, I can find the thing from, I, if I can remember it's in the book, my internal index, then I can use the index to you know hone in and it's right there and it takes me so much less time. Caxton, again, we're talking about the early days Absolutely. of print. So Caxton in the 1480s refers to an index. He starts including indexes um, quite early on. And once he talks about an index as a remembrance, mm-hmm. and that's a really useful word, I think. Caxton, what, what that word suggests to me is that thing that you're talking about, well, you've already read it. Now, the index isn't going to replace properly reading this book all the way through. But once you've read it, it will help you remember the thing that you wanted. Yeah, the capacity of human memory is limited as much as we choose to not yeah. believe, <laughs> believe it is. It reminds me of the um, terrible index by uh, Alexander Pope, or, or Pope was in charge of it, but the Pope's edition of Shakespeare. And it has an index of historical characters and an index of fictional characters. So Macbeth is in the index of historical characters, <laughs> Hamlet's in the index of fictional characters. And and it becomes so sort of random or, or, or so uh, counterintuitive. I mean that that might be correct, but it's not very helpful when you want to look yeah. up. You can yeah, you can have you can have different sequences of things. As you say, the more sequences you have, and there's some there's some books that mm. still use them. But is it is that is that helpful for what you're doing it to be helpful mm. for the reader? And if the reader doesn't know which index something's going to be in the reader is yeah. going to look it up in three or four different indexes and that's not 
that's not saving time then, is it? That's... Again, it comes down to your sort of projection, Paula, of who is the reader? Is, is the reader a, a sort of dry as dust pedant or is the reader somebody who's going to be thinking about the book in, in, in this kind of way? Mm. And is it, is it, as you said, is it a book that they're going to want to go back to? Are they using the index before they've read it? Are they using it yeah, okay. after they've read it? To use it again. We talk about these choices and indexes. I did want to get to the subject of humor in, in indexing because this index is humorous. And of course, that, you know, and because it's a book about indexing, I had, of course, read it thoroughly to make sure I saw uh, all of the all of the jokes in there. And there's a couple even, you know, notes. The indexer even, you know, comes in off stage and uh, makes a comment <laughs> or two with PCB in there. And uh, some of which made me laugh out loud, literally LOL. I mean, imagine, obviously, there's going to be this tendency for some works where someone may want something much more humorous than others but is that something do you take the the pulse of that is that a you know if a work is lively and humor i mean this is a lot you know i should tell this dear listeners index a history of the is very lively this is not a um a, a work of history that's full of uh it's full of, there are dates and facts and figures in it um but it's it's lively tales and, and stories about people and how it relates to this uh, academic topic. Does a publisher or an author or whoever you're working with, they come to you and say, uh, let, you know, three on the humor scale. Does that, is that always a conversation or is it, do you produce something that's fairly dry as a, uh, where you remove yourself from it as your default? This book for Dennis was, was something else entirely. It would not normally be that much of me in an index. I can tell you that. <laughs> and that's not supposed to be, you're supposed right, to be right. fairly neutral and impartial and, invisible and you're just saying what's in the book and how the author and reflecting the tone of the of the book and the author as well so lighter hearted books certainly there's more scope to put more humor and more in um sort of unusual entries um, and play with it a bit as i said I, I do some work for a comedy historian um and his books there's, there's usually some sort of daft character names and things like that that I will put in and he, he knows that I'm putting them in and he's, he's quite all right with that because that's the that's the tone of the book it's a funny book and let's have some fun in the index where you can with this one for Dennis it was um <laughs> full full license to play really which was amazing um I, I knew full well he wanted because he told me he wanted humor in it he wanted personality in it he wanted index jokes he wanted things that were playing with the reader and sending them the wrong way and sort of commenting on the text he wanted snark in it um and I didn't, I didn't want to be sort of too snarky about Dennis as the author, <laughs> but but having but having the um, having the computer index in there as well, that was something I could direct my snark at because then you can have the the, the human index that's saying, well, this computer index is, is a load of rubbish, basically. I, I did want to note that you rest, you restrained yourself because in the index entry for Bain, comma Paula Clark, you do not reference the page in the index on which this appears. And I was kind of waiting. I mean, you, you referenced the non-robotic comma superior index, which is hilarious, but you don't reference yourself on that page. And I thought, does that become a, a recursive problem? You get into an inception issue in the index if you reference. Yeah, the we, we, we talked about this on, on Twitter a bit in week that there was a danger that it could just create out control altogether. <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to find a balance between there had to be a good usable scholarly index in there as well at the base, but then I was also given license to put lots of just put lots of daft stuff in and see and I, I did put a load of things in because I wasn't sure how many of them Dennis would say yes to <laughs> right. and then how many we could get the editor at, um, at the publisher to say yes to and I think all of the the more weird and daft and funny things stayed in and we actually took some quite sensible things out <laughs> to <good>. keep some <laughs> More unusual things in, I think. It comes down to the thing that we were talking about earlier, that, that indexes have specialties. If you're doing your sort of medical textbook, you need somebody who knows all that kind of thing. Um, when I did a book on French literature, I, I chose an indexer who had French. Uh, when, I, when Adam and I did book parts, a lot of which is set during the early modern period. So we went for an indexer who had a background in the classics, because there's quite a lot of Latin. And we thought we need, want, want to get that right. And here I had met Paula at indexing conferences, and I sort of thought, well, this this is something that I want, that type of personality that Paula's done her blog on comedy indexes. I didn't know you'd done the Fry and Laurie book, but I thought there's somebody who's really sort of attuned to, to index wit. And, and so the the way that that index turned out is just, it comes down to sort of choose, choosing your indexer by by category. I thought, well, this is, this is kind of a serious but silly 
Um, and uh, Paula seemed to have <laughs> both, <laughs> both of those strings to her bow. <laughs> I thought it might be fun to finish with um, something that's a little off base, actually, a little bit related to this, which is that the fact that fiction isn't indexed typically well there's a whole variety of variation with that right and then that there's fiction about indexing so we could you know thought zembla comes at the end so we mm. could do that as the, the last item there are times i'm reading fiction where i really want to flip to the back you know i was reading a book recently that had a, that used a very complicated invented language and the author had put in Oh, I don't know. I think there's 27 pages of front matter about people, names, and so forth. And I'm just like, you know, I'm reading along and I'm like, I don't even know who this character is. And I really wanted to flip to the back because my brain wasn't capturing the name in the narrative. And I wanted to flip to the back and find the previous page in which they appeared. Mm. And, and I can't, you know, why does fiction not get indexed? Why does fiction not get indexed? It goes back to that thing about the, the long straight road. So if it's only got sort of one point of entry, which is page mm. one, and you don't go back to it, which mostly we, we don't read novels twice. One category of fiction that does have indexes is things like Lord of the Rings, the, the mm. uber classic. So there is an index to Jane Austen in the uh, quite early on, 1860s. So uh, index oh. to the novels of Walter Scott. There's an index to Proust. There's an index to Lord of the Rings, actually. Mm. But I'm, I couldn't tell you which edition. No, not by the authors. That, that's a, a different type of, of novel as mm -hmm. an index. But um, when something has that status of, well, it may be a novel, but it's a novel that I will go back to. It's a novel where I want oh. to know when that bit when emma goes to box hill uh, what where's that page or so where you're going to want to look something up you're going to want to quote something or just revisit a certain thing then it becomes the type of book that needs the roadmap and lord of the rings certainly has that because uh, among the sort of tolkien culture people don't just read lord of the rings and put it away they talk about it they return to it and stuff so there, there are sort of fan generated indexes to um to lord of the rings because it belongs to the type of novel that people visit on multiple occasions but this becomes the problem too though right if there's 50 editions of i don't know how many editions yeah. there are but yeah. there's so many you know i've got i was in italy once and i needed something to read and i bought a incredibly compact edition of lord of the rings that i've never seen anywhere else it's 1200 pages that's you know maybe an inch and a half thick uh, carrying edition and i don't know who produced i mean i don't know if it was a samastad edition or something like that but it's how do you find things across multiple editions of the same works i mean the indexes i know if they're if they're electronic they could be tagged to page numbers and be updated but it seems what's the way you get access into you know work of fiction particularly because it appears in other editions but but yeah, also yeah, non-fiction yeah. how do you gain access to things through an index when it appears in so many different forms. Well, it's interesting because this was the same problem uh, until printing came along, that when, when the page number wasn't a stable, reliable locator, um, because everything was copied, because in the manuscript period, you and I have uh, fairly identical texts, but you've got a big book and I've got a small book. So so my page numbers are, you know, two or three times. What, what, but then you have to use something else as locator. You have to use paragraph numbers or uh, chapter numbers. The, the Bible chapters come into being for this, for this very reason, round about the year 1200. Then we can quote divisions of the text rather than divisions of the, of, of the book. The page number is a funny thing because it doesn't actually tell us anything about text. It's completely sort of text independent, whereas Bible chapters uh, are related to sort of pauses or, or moments in in the text. So I, I'm guessing, I can't remember, it's a long time since I looked at it, but I suspect that something like the Lord of the Rings index, which you can see as a website, will probably use a division of the text rather than a, a page number from a particular edition. If it doesn't, it's missing a trick. You can finish with, uh, with Pale Fire, which I remember uh, reading while I was relatively young and being completely blown away by because it was you know the the structure was interesting but the fact that there's the index becomes the key part of the novel or uh the kurt vonnegut novel it's uh cat's cradle yeah. uh there's a reference where what's indexers on a plane and the main character our hero going to some distant island they they say oh he shouldn't have indexed his own book because he revealed that he was gay in it and you're mm -hmm. just like it was like okay sure <laughs> sure but um you know the, it's the the fictional device of an index revealing too much do you find that enjoyable to read as an indexer paula is it an in joke when that happens when you read a work of fiction with an index reference I'd, yeah I'd, I'd love i mean i love pale fire and things like that um as you're saying about the um Vonnegut one that's it's an it's an indexer who's reading an author's index and she's yeah I think the chapter is called never index your own book because, <laughs> <I forgot> because <laughs> she is a, she is an indexer so she can read 
character from author indexes. Mm. So she reads into it that he's gay from his index, even though he doesn't think he's put anything about that in there, but she can tell because she's an indexer because she can she can read his character from it, which is brilliant. Getting back to the, the fiction indexing, we I talked about the peer reviews we did the Society of Indexes. We did one on um, Three Men in a Boat not too long ago, Ooh. which is a comic, comic novel. And we did it on, I think, two chapters of that. And we all tried to index it and, and work out what we were going to put in and how funny we were going to try to make it and how funny we... We thought mm. the book was in the first place. It affected how funny the, the indexes <laughs> came out, um, and that was really—it was a very different exercise because you're what are what are you indexing? There's there's a lot of real places mentioned in it because yeah. it's obviously it's, it's a boat trip along the Thames. Um, there's a lot of real historical characters and and places that come up, but there's obviously characters in it and they're doing things. And what what is a fact in the book? I mean, they're all facts yeah. within the the world of the novel, but some of them are real facts from our world, and some are just stories about opening a tin of pineapple I think it is isn't it? Um, and falling in rivers and <laughs> play, playing the banjo and things like that and it was very interesting to see what people thought with a, with a limited space to put this index in what they thought would be the, the interesting things to or the, the most useful mm. things to put in that index so it's it is very different we're not used to we're not used to indexing fiction as indexes so it's a very different very different skills a very different mindset I think it's a really nice idea though what is a fact within the novel Mm-hmm. As opposed to the, the things that you want to, um, or you expect an index, which are facts within the world. That's excellent. Well, I'll close with that thought that uh, Zemblicama, a land that uh, never perhaps existed, but does finish a great work mm. of fiction. Uh, and to my knowledge, podcasts, it's very difficult to provide an audio index. So uh, you may be able to find that later online, in which every topic we discussed is organized in chronological format, in which you have to listen from beginning to end. So I'd like to thank Paul. <laughs> Bain, Paul Clark, and Duncan, Dennis, thank you so much for talking about your work and the nature of the index. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. And I'll have links in the show notes for uh, Index, a history of the and how to find Dennis and Paula online. This has been the Tiny Typecast. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app for future episodes. Tell your friends and visit tinytypemuseum.com for more information about the Tiny Type Museum and Time Capsule and the book Six Centuries of Type and Printing. The Tiny Type Museum is now sold out, but the book remains available. The show's theme includes mechanical elements from Sounds of Change, an archive of freely available recordings of industrial equipment available at soundsofchange.eu. The theme uses Linotype N14 line casting, sound recordist Monica Wisitka, and Heidelberg Platin Press in use at the Finnish Labor Museum Wirstus, used under Creative Commons license. I've been your host, Glenn Fleischman. The podcast is copyright 2022 by A Periodical LLC. It is licensed under Creative Commons CC by NC 4.0. Feel free to distribute this podcast by any means as long as it remains intact. Thanks for listening.